to Estranged. Uh, thrilled again to have Benjamin Studebecker return to the podcast. Uh, we were just talking before pressing record about this interesting notion of what is the universal and how we're kind of dealing with the question of what the universal is. So maybe we'll get onto that. But what prompted my desire to have this conversation today was um, something I'd noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed as well, Benjamin, um, kind of a muddling of cause and effect in relation to certain argumentation or rationalization of various cultural movements on the like liberal left. And um, a few podcasts I listened to, it really kind of got me riled <laughs> because I was like, hang on a second, I don't think this is what Mark said or, you know, this chicken and reversing the chicken and egg in terms of being able to get to some kind of quote unquote utopia by making a few small cultural changes. Um, we're going to talk today loosely about a new Netflix show called uh, Barbarians, uh, which you put me on to Benjamin, which is quite funny in a way. <laughs> and then also a new HBO show called Industry. Um, I believe the first four or five episodes are out. I found it quite interesting. Um, yeah, so should we get into it? Do you want to go back to what you were saying, Benjamin, about um, this this breaking up of uh, the world into a universalist West and a particularist everywhere else? Yeah, we were talking about the different kinds of university degrees and the traditional degrees like politics, sociology, philosophy, history. And then this other set of degrees, which are specifically named after particular regions or peoples which they study, and which therefore begin in a reification of the particularity and specialness and distinctiveness of that people or group. Uh, and we were talking about how a lot of the theory that this is based on is French or German political theory, which is being appropriated and distorted. And we were also talking about how if you look at the political theory, which comes from a lot of these contexts, particularly the East, India and Asia and China, this theory is extremely universalist, much more universalist than Western theory, uh, much more consistently universalist than Western theory. And one of the things that I've always found curious is that the people who most want us to decolonize are often the least interested in what people from other parts of the world actually are saying. Everything they read gets distorted through a Western lens and turned into another version of the same very Western, even very Anglo, mm -hmm. uh, Anglo-centric doctrine to the point where they can't read anything that is outside of that box without turning it into that box. Absolutely. I mean, this is something that... Um... I found really troubling and I've also found very annoying over recent years where you have only the likes of Peterson uh, attacking what he calls cultural Marxism from the right when I think what he's describing uh, as cultural Marxism is actually a right-wing anglicized misunderstanding of uh, European texts and if you read um, a lot of these original texts in the original language, uh, you would find that the message or perspective is quite the opposite of that which is put forward by quote-unquote woke identity politics. And it would have nothing to do with 
identity politics because it's profoundly unidentitarian, unessentialist and universalist often. Um, but it's interesting, yeah, that the, the right uh, wants to particularise and that identity politics for me is an immersion of capitalism at its most intense and that leads to a right-wing deviation of the left, quote unquote, and also well, just identity politics on the right. But we, we made a film uh, last year, completed this year, based on a Buddhist parable. And I think the notion of Buddhism that we have in the West is a westernized version of Buddhism. And maybe when you see the film and you think it's gonna be about a Buddhist theme, you might think it's, <laughs> you might be disturbed by the underlying themes at play because it is um, actually like I'm not that I'm an expert on Buddhism um, and I don't think Buddhism is the answer to really anything but just in terms of the perspective of this particular story is one of finding solidarity and loss and the essential brokenness of each individual which is required in order to enter into subjectivity so it's about the all, but the lacking all, and it definitely isn't about personal enlightenment or personal improvement or attaining some kind of goal or perfectionism in any way. So yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there in the kind of self development genre that borrows from ancient theory, which is oriented toward getting past the concept of the self or the notion of the self outright. And so a lot of people are, are trying to take these ideas and use them to discover who they are when the answer is that who you are is not the question that matters mm -hmm. uh, because you're part of everything and everything is part of you. Absolutely. That's a, a relatively basic idea in, I mean, even Western ancient mm -hmm. thought, even with Neoplatonism and the one, uh, ubiquitous in, in ancient thought. I think very often this Western-Eastern distinction, which is itself Orientalist, mm -hmm. uh, but which is used a lot by uh, contemporary people making these kinds of arguments. Most of the time, what people are really talking about is a pre-capitalist, post-capitalist divide. Yeah. I know it's interesting, this notion of um, also where the pre-capital, well, where, where, where capitalism gets tied into in a lot of these things. So um, when, we, when we look at identity politics today that, um, you know, when I'm talking about identity politics at the moment, I'm saying, you know, the, the kind of left liberal um, essentialist identity questions. Um, for example, Lacan, a lot of uh, gender studies and film studies refers to Lacan. Um, and there's questions of, you know, gender, the, the, the woman doesn't exist is, is a well-known statement from Lacan. But actually what he's trying to delineate is not um, the fact that say gender is necessarily a performance, a cultural performance that is reductive and needs to be overcome. It's more that, you know, there is there is a lacking universalism to men and women, and also that you know the the um, subjectival structures 
emerge out of material conditions and so they might change according to a material condition. Which then leads me on to a question that we were talking about a little bit before uh, in terms of some of these, um, you know, that the Marx, Marxist schema and the question of utopia and certain things that emerge in Marx's writing at various stages related to, you know, social relations or social quote-unquote constructs and how they might uh, look in various different material, you know, political economies. And then sort of this weird thing of like, well, if in communism the family doesn't exist, can we just overcome the family and get to communism? You know, there's these questions of like, what, what is an emergent of what? Um, there's a, a line in Marx from, I think it's in the Communist Manifesto, wherever the bourgeoisie is in the ascendancy, um, you know, patriarchy is dissolved, something along those lines that patriarchy, and if we look at, we look at the uh, barbarians, uh, do we see a patriarchal society? I mean, is that what a patriarchal society is? It, are we in any more patriarchal society under capitalism than, than in past periods? I would argue less so, personally. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very, it's all very confusing and it's, as, as you say, and I think as you, you will argue with the Shea Barbarians, there's always a, um, ha ha ha, term, cultural appropriation. <laughs> I obviously don't mean literally cultural appropriation, but there's, there's a um, taking of something else into a perspective that maybe is Western, that we don't even know is not um, ideological or is ideological. We don't even know that we have this ideological perspective. Yeah. So with barbarians, you just have this this relentless presentism in the way this stuff is presented. And you always have to be skeptical whenever you're watching the Germans talking about Arminius, the French talking about Vercingetorix, or the British talking about Boudicca, because these ancient rebellion figures uh, have became very significant parts in the nationalist narratives by which these countries constructed themselves. Uh, and so the, the curious thing is, okay, the Germans are doing a show about Arminius. The Germans tell us all the time that they're past nationalism and that they're proud of not being proud. But here's a German production, and it's about Arminius. Uh, uh, so you have to be suspicious of what's there to begin with, right? Now, you come, you come into this show, and on the one hand, they're trying very hard to make it feel period accurate. The costumes have done a tremendous job on the budget for the costumes must have cost a fortune, right? But then there are all of these narrative concessions to the contemporary perspective throughout the show. And three really stuck out to me. One is that Arminius is historically said to have stolen his wife from another German family, that he abducted her, right? Now, some people speculate that maybe she came willingly and that saying that she was abducted was a way of, of taking her father's point of view. But that's speculation because we don't have any hard historical evidence for that. Now, in the show, not only did she come of her own free will, but she's kind of in charge. She's kind of the leader of the whole thing. And also she's a, she's a seer or she's able to convince people that she's a seer and she uses this to have all kinds of persuasive influence. Uh, 
there's no historical basis for any of that. The purpose of it is to get a, a woke, strong female lead character in the show, right? So then there's a, another scene where there's this boy and uh, he, he gets disabled. He gets hit by a Roman soldier's sword, of course, to make the Romans look like they're bad guys, uh, and which is another sign that this is not a pure history thing. This definitely takes a German point of view and German perspective on that period. So the boy is, is disabled by getting hit in the head. And the parents do what a lot of ancient families did in this kind of situation, which is they're going to go and uh, push him off a cliff because they think that he is too crippled to have a good life. And, of course, our strong female lead, who is the stand-in for presentism and for the modern perspective in the show, comes and saves him and scolds her parents for uh, trying to kill her brother, right? So now we've got an ableism angle in the show, which of course doesn't fit with the period. There's no reason why, even if you did have a strong female character in a period like that, that that strong uh, female warrior, she fights too, she fights and she's a seer, that she would then save uh, a disabled child. There's no reason to think that she would do that, right? Mm -hmm. Historically. Right. So then the, the next element is they give Arminius an identity crisis, which is a, a very modern thing to do. <laughs> right. Arminius is so concerned with who am I? Am I German? Am I Roman? Yeah. Right. Uh, there's no evidence that he had an identity yeah. crisis, but this is the only way that modern people can imagine what it might be like to be someone who grew up in a German family and then was given up as a hostage. Mm -hmm. And they make it out like this. Oh, he, the fact that he was given up as a hostage, this must have been so traumatic for him. The reality is until just a few hundred years ago, giving people up as hostages in diplomatic uh, treaties was completely, completely normal. Mm -hmm. Something people did all the time, because in the ancient world, how are you supposed to ensure that other people keep their word? It's very hard. You have very poor communication. Mm -hmm. You're not going to know for a while if somebody does uh, betray you. It's very difficult. So the way that they did it is that when you conclude an agreement, you give members of your family to the other person. And so if the other person discovers that you violated the treaty, they can execute the members of your family in whatever kind of gruesome way they want. Right. Now, this is, of course, today viewed as, as completely wrong because you're you're punishing people who aren't the ones who betrayed you. You're punishing other people who are related to them. But from an ancient perspective, there's no other practical way mm -hmm. to ensure that people keep agreements unless you have something that you can take from them as a punishment if they deviate. And by giving up hostages, you are saying, I'm so committed to this. I'm willing to put people into your care. Uh, that's that's how sure you should be that I'm going to stick with the terms. Right. And that's why you want a valuable hostage. You want someone that the other person that you're negotiating with actually cares about. And of course, who do they care about more than their children, their family members? So it's entirely normal for people to be given up as hostages. And there's no obvious reason why it would produce that kind of identity crisis. But they have to put these things in here because the modern audience, and in, I think in many cases, modern writers, really struggle to put themselves in any kind of system of thought, mm -hmm. which is not 21st century Western. Exactly. And I mean, 21st century, not even 50 years ago. ago. I yeah. don't even think yeah. people can do the post-war era anymore. No, they can't. I mean, I've, I, it's funny. I, I have Instagram and there's a, an, a, a comedian on Instagram that I 
find quite interesting to watch because it's all it's sort of um, poo-pooing other people's perspectives through quote-unquote comedy. So the latest one was about a 50s housewife on Thanksgiving doing a PSA of what, you know, what how she should behave in, you know, to her husband on, on Thanksgiving. And again, it, it's totally, it's, you know, they talk about this, one talks about this decolonialising, whatever, but you're just put, putting forward your own, this idea of, oh, we, we must... You know, it's a hugely Western capitalistic ideology to, to, and I actually don't even know, I don't want to put those two words side by side because I don't necessarily think, obviously, capitalism and West are that intrinsically bound, except for historical contingency. But, you know, so, so you, we, we always are improving, we're always improving. The Enlightenment, now woke, you know, I think it's an interesting term. We're so much better now. We we look at those idiots in the past. How fucking stupid! <laughs> or why, why the hell are they doing this? That's just so backwards, and there's no reason. And we know better now. We know better. But of course, you know the the scapegoat mechanism in any social construct still exists. So that you know un um, sort of unsquareable circle or uncirclable square goes somewhere and there's a scapegoat mechanism at play and it just goes somewhere else you know it's not like it's not like that you know obviously there can be material improvements but the same issues abound but they're just dealt with differently um but i thought it was, you know you're right they the, the very impressive use of latin in the show you know it really gives it lends it a sort of authenticity but in a way it just feels weird because you know, perhaps if we were doing a Terence Malick film set in that era, where, you know, it's just a sort of um, first-person perspective of being dropped in a situation 2,000 years ago or whatever, it might be more appropriate. But it seems very odd to have this, go to all of that, um, uh, all of those lengths to, to, to make it authentic. It's like, like even mm. learning those lines in Latin. And this is the really amazing thing about it. You know, I, I often think, well, it's because people haven't read this stuff or they haven't yeah. looked at it. No, it's it's presentism. Yeah. It's that they do look at it. They do a, a lot of research. They clearly did a lot of research into the basic facts of what yeah. happened in the period. But the reading is just overwhelmingly colored by the contemporary perspective to yeah. the point where even when they think that they're reading something that is non-Western or mm -hmm. non-modern, uh, they can't help but read it that mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a relatively recent cultural development, our total inability to, to read anything from the past. Mm -hmm. I think even 10 or 15 years ago, mm -hmm. there was a lot of artistic work that was a lot better at this. If you go back to HBO's Rome, mm -hmm. that had a much more authentic uh, set of, of ancient perspectives in, running in that show. And of course, HBO took licenses with it historically and, and it's not like I'm, it's perfectly historical, but it was more faithful to the way Romans and ancient people more broadly think about stuff. Yeah. It was more interested in trying to replicate that and in trying to make the viewer feel a little bit alien or a little bit out of place. The way that they would react to something would be definitely very different from the way that we would react. Mm -hmm. And you were invited to think about that and decide whether to judge the character for it or, mm -hmm. or to not. Uh, and you know, that led to some disturbing situations where 
eventually, if you get into the mindset of that period, you would find yourself sympathizing with people doing things that you would not under current circumstances sympathize with. And that was a real invitation to ponder. Absolutely. It's interesting. There's a a Sophia Coppola movie, Marie Antoinette, which modernizes everything aesthetically. You know, she wears converse and they speak in sort of modern languages and it has this very you know, it's it's sort of a, a pastiche on, on Marie Antoinette. But actually, one could say it's more faithful in terms of um, the context, the sort of atmosphere that she was living in, and it lends itself to a way of comprehending certain historical um, what choices made based on the lives that were lived. So yeah, just the fact that they're sort of um, shepherded in by authenticity, actually, ironically, the, the opposite is true. But, you know, talking about all of this in, in university contexts and the studies of um, texts or cultures or ideas coming from different places around the world and how there's such uh, import placed on decolonization when actually... Um, it it is entirely often read or a whole discipline is constructed around a westernized often patronizing misreading of a perspective or philosophy or set of ideas Um, right it's a cover for doing precisely the same thing that people in the west have always been accused of doing taking everything from other places and rewriting it reconceiving it through a western narrative or western lens Uh, and now it's being done precisely in the name of not doing that Mm -hmm. and part of the reason i thought of barbarians for today is the extent to which that show is just another way of doing german nationalism the same german nationalism that's been present throughout german history and is associated to whatever degree you want to associate it with everything that the german state has ever done Mm -hmm. and making it okay because it has woke elements to it And that's the quintessential example of what is going on. Uh, as long as you say, I'm trying to get at other perspectives or I'm trying to uh, be faithful to social justice, you can do everything that everybody has previously done that mm-hmm. we think is not okay. Yeah. And you'll be celebrated for it. Absolutely. It's interesting because the other show that we're going to just talk about very briefly is um, uh, industry and it's. Uh, about a set of um, university graduates who are um, fighting their way to being retained um, as full-time staff at the most prestigious financial institution in London or the world or whatever. And it's interesting because um, the cast is very diverse, as I'm sure, you know, the people who work in these international institutions are very diverse, whatever that means, to a certain extent. I'm not sure how many working class people work for these organizations whatever but the um yeah there's there's sort of this sort um very uh occasional digs at capitalism um so there's a, a character who very much like the narrative of suits um is a, a genius from a background who wouldn't have got into banking but makes up that she has a degree from this university and fakes the transcripts. It always happens in these sort of corporate dramas. Um, and uh, she is trying to become a, a trader and um, at one stage she's looking for a flat in London and the person um, looking for a flatmate says, you know, how can you live with yourself? Isn't it disgusting to work at that bank? And she says, you know, not if you don't come from money. 
So, you know, it's all this sort of like um, these ways of excusing it and saying they even have a passage about how now, um, you know, within capitalism, you can criticize capitalism. And it's then they, you know, they, uh, there's a passage about Nike's uh, way of criticizing capitalism to the anti-capitalist who buys the shoes. So, you know, that that's true. But the same dynamics as in the same narratival dynamics are at play. Um, you know, I personally don't think, I think the story form has existed and drama has existed through all human existence. And our, particularly within film, there is this belief that drama has to be about attaining a goal or not attaining a goal or, you know, which I, you know, there has to be a narrative drive. I agree with that. But there is a very ideological reading of what, um, drama is and what it has to be to be engaging and I totally reject it even though I do use the narrative form but I think it can be undercut in various ways and I actually think that drama has the capacity to be completely actually emancipatory and actually anti-capitalist whatever that means but it's just the same sort of thing within this show um no criticism of actually the ethics of the, the institution um what it gets you to do unquestioningly is to, to hope that these characters succeed. So, yeah, no, I just think it's, it's interesting that, that these, these drama forms that potentially are presenting themselves as being, look, we, we've heard your criticism that uh, capitalism is using woke imagery to sell more stuff. Look, look, we're aware of that now. We've included it, so it's fine. But it, it doesn't change. The underlying ideological perspective doesn't change at all. Yeah, not even a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting as well, I always find, I mean, I don't know that much, I'm not an expert on history at all, but um, I know a little bit about uh, ancient Greece, um, having done study ancient Greece for my A-levels, I don't know why, but um, this idea of what patriarchy is and the role of women historically is, so that this idea that, you know, emancipation of women is getting them out of being a housewife and a woman who's hidden away in the house, who can only care for children or do menial household tasks. When in that society, the only women who that applied to were elite women in Athens. You know, it's, it's a fantasy that doesn't exist. Potentially it was, you know, emerged again in the 1950s. But women through the history of time have never lived or throughout the world have never lived this sort of fantasy life of uh, a form of patriarchal oppression that is a, a very western very upper middle class fantasy and, and many of those women uh, would have been very happy to have gotten into that position Absolutely. because then they would not have had to work and would have lived in comfort and yes. their fathers would have very much wanted them to marry in those men who would have treated them in that way yes. because of the like, more luxurious lifestyle available to aristocratic women. Uh, but you know, I think that a big part of what is going on with the family is that we have tried to replicate an aristocratic institution mm -hmm for classes that are fundamentally not aristocratic. Yeah. So the reason that the aristocratic family functioned mm -hmm. uh, is that it had enough resource that people could perform these very, very distinct limited roles. Mm -hmm. And therefore you could be prepared from birth for these very distinct 
limited roles. You'd be psychologically totally prepared to perform them. They were very straightforward, very easy to understand, and they offered a lot of stability to people. Mm -hmm. As we've tried to move the family into lower economic strata, what we find is that we don't have enough resources for people to perform these very clear, distinct roles. And so we have had to blur the roles in that traditional family structure to the point where they become less and less distinguishable, especially as we've moved from single income to two income households. Mm -hmm. Now, the roles don't have distinctiveness. Mm -hmm. The advantage in getting rid of that distinctiveness is that now people can do a wider variety of things and are less constrained by the roles. And that is good. And I'm happy that we've had that change. The disadvantage is that it leaves people kind of unmoored and kind of unsure what they're meant to be doing in life. And as we have gotten greater levels of instability in the workplace, we've also gotten greater levels of instability in the family. The family struggles to function when there isn't stable, regular income, when these things aren't predictable. The family is very much an institution based around predictability, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really fit very well with capitalism. Capitalism destroys the predictability and the, the fixed roles yeah. which are necessary to sustain the, the aristocratic family. It destroyed more or less the aristocracy mm -hmm. and it is destroying copies of aristocratic institutions duplicated further down the class structure. And I think what, what people are frustrated about is they keep looking to the family because the family is a distinctly non-capitalist institution, yeah, yeah. people keep looking to the family to solve all of the problems of capitalism. So a lot of conservatives look to the family as the kind of solution to everything. And this results in this fixation on romance and finding uh, a romantic partner, especially in the United States, where the university students in the Midwestern universities have this saying, ring before spring, uh, that your university boyfriend has to give you a ring before you graduate. See. Or he's he's a dirt bag, uh, and you know, I've, I had people from in, in Indiana, you know, say, well, if you don't find the person you're going to marry before you leave university, yeah. then you know your life is over because all the good ones will be taken. You know, that kind of yeah. In Europe, yeah. it's 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 changed. The family has uh, been eroded more, but in, in the United States, there's still a lot of this idea that the family is the thing that is going to give you stability, going yeah. to give you happiness. You're not going to get it from any other part of the social system. And as civil society organizations have declined, as the workplace has grown very fickle and, and not at all a uh, reliable place to look for anything, uh, there's more and more focus on the family. And of course, the family can't do everything. It was designed to give people very clear, distinct roles that were very limited. And if you ask the family to be your whole social world, to make up for the lack of civil society organizations, to make up for the fact that your job sucks, um, if you're asking another person to do everything for you socially, because you're, you don't have very many friends, people have fewer and fewer friends on average than they used to do, of course that's too much. And of course the family will be dysfunctional and will not perform well in that kind of setting. And so people go, well, if we just got rid of the family, then we wouldn't have these problems. The problems, you know, the family as an institution has its issues, but the problems that people are talking about come from the lack of stability in yeah. society, which makes it impossible to achieve the ideal of stability in the family. Yeah, absolutely. I know, I think this is, you know, talking about all of this is concerns about how, when does the, how the husband, blah, 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 blah. You know, it's interesting that literally the most uh, reproduced story uh, potentially in literature and, and film is the romantic comedy, which is Jane Austen. 
you know, which is, speaks to a stratum of society which is specifically um, upper middle class aspiring to, to marry into an aristocracy. Um, but, you know, that, that those concerns affect many people, um, particularly in a society where we all feel precarious. It's obviously a, a sensation within the family and pride and prejudice, the Bennets, of being precarious in that, you know, they don't have a male heir and they could be proletarianized if they don't marry well. Um, and it's interesting, but, you know, it, but it, it's a very oppressive feeling. But then on top of that now, you know, you have your career and you have, well, your family, as in your own family, your, your giving birth hasn't been um, a question that has been uh, thought about as much as perhaps it was going to be thought about in the past. And there are all these questions that are profoundly disorientating. So perhaps it's not, um, surprising that the ideology of middle class feminism, you know, has emerged because it's 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 a really traumatic experience with these questions of family, career, and the profoundly destabilizing um, political economy. Which, of course, that's capitalism. The family isn't that. You know, the family is a contingent organization. Um, that developed over the course of time but the real question is yeah market forces or um yeah the, the fact that the capitalism wants to destabilize everything i, mean, I hate to once but capitalism will destabilize everything so yeah but the, the question is well i've seen a lot of arguments about um oh the you know obviously this was a uh, something that emerged in the 70s but it's being talked about a lot today about the abolish, abolition of family and that will lead to um, the emancipation of women. Um, yeah, one of the ideas that's very popular on the left is this idea that if we remove every source of stability or happiness from people's lives, anything that people retreat to or find any solace in, then they'll have no alternative but to stage a revolt, stage a revolution. And that if you want a revolution, the way to do that is to make people as miserable as possible. Now, I, I would submit to you that instead what happens is we produce people who are psychologically really damaged mm -hmm. by a lack of any source of stability. Mm -hmm. And that means they aren't able to act in a strategic way. Yeah. And their engagement with politics becomes about catharsis yeah. and about emotional Absolutely. fulfillment. Yeah. And that nothing good, no alternative socialist system that is of any value mm -hmm socialist, communist, anarchist, whatever, of any value, is likely to come out of people who have absolutely no basis of psychological stability. Yeah. And I think we've seen over the last 10 years the consequences of people with very, very poor mental well-being trying to do politics. Uh, in the Trump era, I think that that's run rampant. I think it has a big, a lot to do with this presentism in art. I think a lot of it is working out anxiety and neuroses with respect to Trump mm -hmm. uh, and Brexit and, and all of these right populists all over the world. And the, the anxious, fearful, highly, highly negative emotive, I, I'm not saying that all emotion is bad, but that the really negative emotions that are about fear and which produce a, a retreat into the self uh, and this fixation on who am I because nothing else around me uh, yeah, I, I, I don't feel comfortable being defined by anything else around me. None of the roles that I'm in makes me feel okay. 
So how can I construct a, a me that is completely separate from all of the roles that mm -hmm. I play, mm -hmm. uh, which is, I think, the root of identity politics. The root of it is not being comfortable in any of your roles, not really accepting or any yeah. of the roles that you're in, and therefore needing to construct a sense of self that is entirely role independent, yeah. which I think is, is a kind of I hesitate to use the language, but I think it's a kind of mental illness that, that is inflicted on people, this, yeah. this inability to be comfortable in roles. I think it's, I think uh, it's, we, it's need, a, a, we need some roles. I know. I think and, it's definitely a mental illness inflicted by capital. I think that, that there is a, um, you know, so within psychoanalysis, there's a, a bucket that most people fall into called neurosis. And that, you know, the idea is one is that one should be more comfortable with um, instability. However, one needs an essential amount of stability. I'm sorry I interrupted yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like uh, Robert Gooden wrote this book on settling, mm -hmm. uh, where he makes the point, you know, we, we are always talking about striving, striving, trying to get better, trying to improve, progress, progress. But in order to strive in some areas, you have to settle in others. Mm -hmm. You need some kind of place of stability to return to, uh, some place to have, a, have some level of foundation so that you can engage in other areas of life with some minimum level Absolutely. of well-being. I think Hegel has, uh, you know, this idea of absolute knowledge being like basically able, being able to accept the contradiction, I think is, can be a stabilizing force. And I think in a way, Christianity in its original sense tries to do that. And it's interesting that it comes out of a time of, you know, this terrible experience for a lot of people where they took solace in this experience of the cross, the end of meaning. You know, you can find, you can reach, hit rock bottom there almost. And, you know, the 12 steps, the step zero, you know, I accept that I'm, you know, alcoholic or whatever. But, but yeah, absolutely, the, 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 capitalism erodes um, any, you know, all that is sacred is profaned. Any, any symbol, any meaning, any category... Is, is dissolved and the market depends on instability. But so to a certain extent, of course, like family, one could argue is, is a bulwark against capitalism. You know, it's a way to protect yourself. But as you say, can, can we put all of that, um, that, you know, that role on that one institution? But then, of course, you know, you've got questions of, of freedom. What is freedom? <laughs> um, is, you know, where, where is freedom good? Where does it have limitations? Um, but, yeah, no, it is interesting that identity politics, on, obviously we have identity politics on the right that's very much to do with nation and um, skin colour, let's say. <laughs> and the left, I hate using this, these terms now, which I just think have kind of lost their meaning, but, you know, the, really the self, gender you know gender is the first question am i this or am i that um yeah i mean it's it's total reduction to to but it's interesting though that you would think that a lot of these studies considering that they they take place in the university and they have some degree of intellectual legitimacy they don't question the real issues at play that are generating these questions it's never questioned yeah why, why are we taking such an interest in these things to begin with Yeah. Uh, when people historically didn't? And I think part of the trouble is that a lot of people don't realize that people historically didn't think about this stuff in this way. One of the arguments that I find are occurring more and more often in our discourse 
is this idea that, well, how could you not be doing identity politics? Uh, isn't you know refusing to do identity politics just white identity politics? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an inability even to imagine an alternative to thinking about things in this way. Uh, sometimes I make the point on Twitter or I say to people you know, about getting outside of the self or trying to get beyond blame and shame and see how things are connected. And people often respond to this with, well, how could you not you know, be in the self? Uh, what would that even mean? Uh, people have a hard time wrapping their head around these mm-hmm. ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think for that reason, when they encounter this kind of language, they feel a need to find a way to reconcile it with the perspective that they're starting with. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. It's interesting. So the, um, Adam Curtis did a documentary on Freud and Freud's nephew, Bernays, who brought the theory of psychoanalysis to America and how it was corporatized in in, um, in uh, advertising. And I think the thing is, though, that I mean, I only watched the first episode and I actually find it a bit annoying because it misses actually what the premise of psychoanalysis is. That in that technology, you enter into the self to come to confront the fact that you are within the universal through your essential lack, which generates your subjectivity. So there's a dialectic to it. You get to the other end. (laughs) And essentially the cure is that point where the self is not important. You know, you are more the universal than the self. But this, I just don't know where this is going to end. This identity point, it doesn't doesn't go far enough. Or maybe there is another side of it. Maybe it will, I don't know, enter into something else. But yeah, and it's also interesting, these questions of what is left and what's right and what's neither. And the the fact that, you know, if you you value a certain type of discourse, or I would say, you know, that a lot of the um, philosophy and literature that came out contingently of it, whatever country they come out of, is a technology to access the universal. And it's nothing about the West or English or men or anything. It's just, it's a technology. And it's nothing, you know, it, it, it's not, it's not, it's not place essentialist. But if you take that perspective, somehow that's right wing into some people, which I think is actually the complete opposite of right wing. But yeah. Yeah. I, you know, to one of my favorite old fashioned stories that gets at this kind of stuff is uh, Plato's chariot allegory in the Phaedrus, where Plato positions us as kind of reaching for truth, reaching mm-hmm. for the ability to grasp the unity of everything. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that part of us that wants to grasp the unity of everything is the rider on, on this chariot. And there are two horses, uh, a light horse and a dark horse. The light horse is focused on honor and reputation. Mm -hmm. So it wants to be thought of as good, uh, but it doesn't have any interest in the good itself. It is just interested in its reputation. Mm -hmm. But that makes it relatively easy to motivate because you can reproach it, you can scold it, you can say, well, that's a very uh, poor way to behave. And then it will will behave. Uh, The dark horse is interested only in its own pleasure, in its own bodily welfare. And therefore, the only way you can get the dark horse to do anything else is to uh, whip it, beat it, inflict pain on it so that through fear of a negative bodily experience, it will prefer uh, to do what you want to do. And for Plato, the only way that we can get to the truth is to get these winged horses, the horses have wings, Mm -hmm. to fly us up above the clouds into the heavens 
So we are reliant on this subjective body, mm -hmm. this body which is not at all interested in what our project is, mm -hmm. uh, to get us to the point where we can actually grasp truth. And if we don't take good care of our horses, if we don't take care of our bodies, if we don't meet our social and biological needs, then of course we can't fly up there. Mm -hmm. So we have to take care of those things. Mm -hmm. But in the course of taking care of those things, it's easy to put them in charge or think that life is about those things yeah. rather than actually discovering the unity. And so there's this mediated relationship between the experience of self, which is the horses and the body, mm -hmm. and the experience of truth, which is you know, the writer's ambition to get into the heavens. Uh, and and that universal versus self-distinction is there even in Plato. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, it's not a Western versus Eastern thing. Mahayana Buddhism, for instance, uh, comes very much out of an early interaction between the Buddhist tradition and the Greeks of Bactria and India, because as a result of Alexander the Great's conquest, kingdoms were established in Central Asia, Greek kingdoms, and even in India, that lasted for a very, very long time, centuries. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of interaction between these different uh, religious faiths. There's a novel by Gore Vidal called Creation, mm -hmm. that is, a, a, I think, a nice way for people who might la like reading heavy philosophy to get at this idea of interconnectedness between West and East, where Gore Vidal writes this novel about a Persian diplomat who travels to Greece and India and China, and it is interacting with Confucius and uh, the Buddha and uh, even Socrates in, in Greece, because all of these figures are purported to perhaps have lived at around the same time. And what you, you see is a, an immense amount of continuity. Yeah, there, there's some sharp differences, but there's an immense amount of continuity and lots of areas of similarity. Mm -hmm. And the emphasis drifts a bit. But if you take into account the way that Greek thought in particular develops, uh, this idea of there being a kind of sharp good evil mm -hmm. where you choose, in that book, that comes out of Zoroastrianism, a mm -hmm. Persian yeah. belief system, not the West. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and it just, it, it, it's a, I, I like that novel because it kind of plays with some of people's uh, prejudices about this period and about the way the world used to be. Absolutely. It's interesting though, because this question of the, of the universal, I've heard some people uh, criticize this idea that, oh, it's just the next, it's the next thing that capitalism is going to use to, you know, to justify itself and to sell things back to us. But I actually think that there is a universal that is beyond the market that cannot be uh, commodified. And that is the lack. And in psychoanalysis, you know, your subjectivity is born out of the fact that you are born too early, you're part of the mother and you're separated from your mother. And at that point, language is generated. So we always have the sensation of wanting to return to the breast of this oneness that existed before we were born. And this oneness that, well, this is a death drive, you know, the oneness that we're only going towards is death. Um, but that obviously that, that, that's an illusion because it is death. So we don't really want to return to it. But the fact is, you know, we, we're marked by a lack and the lack is generative of subjectivity and it's generative, I think, of everything. But it, it cannot be, it can, that's the universal, that's the only thing we share. If you speak, you go through that experience and that's it. And, it, you know, it can't be, it's the thing that ties you to other people. It, it doesn't set you apart. It can't be one above the other, it can't. So we do share something, but we share an essential nothing. 
but you know obviously there's this idea of universalism and the Benetton type that you know we're just diverse capitalism or whatever but I think what we're talking about is something more metaphysical and it's it's actually nothing to do with just a, an aesthetic issue of representation or oh we're more alike than we thought now I'm going to just exploit you because I'm going to instead of invade you pay you lower wages or give you the op the business opportunity you need you know so yeah I don't know it is it is worrying though you know we're talking about how destabilizing everything is I mean do you have a prediction of where we're going to where we're going well I think that there are kind of two different, I see two different reactions to where we're going. Uh, and this is kind of political, but uh, it has all sorts of cultural repercussions. Uh, so one is a, is a kind of attempt to regain stability by getting rid of capital mobility and trying to roll back globalization, which I think increasingly we're affiliating with the right and elements of, say, the Eurosceptic Lexit yeah. left. Yeah. Attempts to reconstruct the post-war era and the security that that era was able to deliver to a larger number of people, mainly in rich, rich states. Uh, on the opposite end, I think that there's also this attempt to make so because there's been this erosion of civil society organizations, I think there's this effort to reconstruct a public sphere and to make the state personal. Mm -hmm. The issue, of course, is that the state has, uh, the modern state is designed to accommodate an extraordinarily broad and different set of people. And it does this through very, very thin representation mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And gradually, people are demanding that the state reflect who they feel they are on some level. Uh, and I think this has its roots in medieval Catholicism, this idea that the state has to reflect God or be in alignment with God mm -hmm. uh, because of the papacy being above kings in Western Europe. Something that I think was very distinctive about the Western European experience was this idea that the state is below mm -hmm. the religious leader, yeah. whereas in other states during that period and after that period, largely, the religion is underneath the state or the religion and the state are the same thing and indistinguishable. Mm -hmm. uh, and so gradually there's been this push to get the state to reflect more and more of our cultural content, our aesthetic content, to the point where people are, I think, most offended by Trump, not because of what he does, but mm -hmm. because of the fact that he aesthetically isn't like them, yeah. uh, that they don't see themselves in him. They see nothing of themselves in him, but they could see a lot of themselves in, say, Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's this push to bring the state closer to you as an individual. Now, that kind of public realm where there's a lot of direct interfacing between the state and the individual was, I think, uh, you know, workable in, say, a Roman context or a, an ancient context where you have levels of political status mm -hmm. and a major element of how you understand yourself is through your political status whether yeah. you say possess roman citizenship you're an equite you're a lord you're a priest you're a, whatever it is that you are recognized as being under the law mm -hmm. that's a big element of how you understand yourself mm -hmm. but because there is no reconciliation with roles now i think there's instead this kind of grasping desire to feel like the state is you yeah absolutely and and because the state can't be you to lots of different people, this mm -hmm. is leading to pushes for direct democracy, 
uh, that and for say uh, uh, devolution and localism and autonomism and a uh, lot of anarchism, but these things can never satisfy us because we want our political institution to be too much of the ego. Yeah. Because ancient people were not expecting the state to relate to them at the level of ego. They could have a public realm, but because in, in our attempts to reconstruct the public realm, we want it to be the projection of the ego, uh, we can't have that in a stable way. And so I think that right now, the political movements that are appropriating these sentiments are not interested in following through with these projects. I don't think that the right populists are really interested in, in going back to the 50s and tearing apart capital mobility. And I don't think that the anarchists are, uh, well, not the anarchists, but the kind of left liberal politicians that weaponize anarchist and woke sentiment. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're actually interested in tearing apart the state and, and doing all of that. Mm -hmm. But gradually over time, uh, stuff that begins as a strategy often becomes what the next generation of people believe. So if you start to cater to these ideas in the discourse, then a generation of people will come up who will not view this as a strategic thing, but as something to potentially do, something to really attempt. And I think in the long run, we're going to get more and more pressure either to try to go back to the 50s mm -hmm. or to try to build this very cathartic very heavily participatory direct system. And it'll come through a series of institutional reforms, which are all done in the name of democracy. Yeah. But it, it will just produce greater and greater levels of dissatisfaction. And I think that it's, it's a legitimation trap, that yeah. it's making the criteria for legitimacy in the representation category in particular more and more demanding to the point where you can no longer have legitimacy through representation, which means you can no longer have legitimacy through the modern state. And I think that's something that excites a lot of anarchists mm -hmm. because you know, they, they see potential in that. But I don't think that it's going to go where they'd like it to go. I think that because you can't legitimate a state through that strategy, the strategy that's much more likely to prevail, especially a warming world with climate change mm -hmm. and conflict driven by climate change, is a retreat into the nation state yeah. and a return to the nation state cathartically representing the group. Yeah. the people in a Schmidtian sense. The thing about the Schmidtian model is that the Schmidtian model can be done. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. It has very pernicious effects, but you can build a state around that model and that state can sustain. The anarchist move can't actually sustain a polity, which means anyone who attempts to fulfill that yeah. is going down a path that will end in getting out competed by these nation staters yeah. because the nation staters have a broader cooperative scheme that pulls more people in in a more organized way yeah so i think in the long run that's that's more likely to prevail but those are the two currents i'm seeing it's interesting I mean, it's funny when you say yeah the politicians that look like us i just find it very alienating to see aoc do her makeup on instagram or there being articles about kamala wearing Converse shoes or something. You know what? What is this? What is this? But you know, I think there is a sense. You know, there's that's. You this this seeing yourself. I mean, there's a very early mirror stage in you know psychoanalytic theory, and it's you know it's very regressive. It's very childlike. You know, it's very sort of return to the breast. You know, oh, I'm seeing this very reassuring image of myself. Or she's part of me is there within the within the horse of power. I think there's also about this self within the politics that is always going to be extremely disappointing, as you say, and traumatically so. And we saw that with Tony Blair, 
And I think we're coming to see that more with Barack Obama, that these people cannot live up to the fantasies that we wish that they they not only represented, but they were. But it's interesting, this return to the nation state. I mean, Ireland is an interesting question. I mean, I'm in Northern Ireland and obviously conflict about the nationhood and uh, this question of, of what, um, of Irish nationalism, British imperialism. It's just an interesting question because I, I, I think it's extremely com complicated and uh, it's interesting that, yeah, the left took a certain turn on that on that front. But also, you know, it is interesting as well. I think the anarchist position, I've never personally understood it, so that's not to say that there is some, not something to understand, but to, I see people adopting this position from a certain class background um, and it being foregrounded on, on the sort of media left in a way that one comes to think potentially that it is just um, convenient to the market. Um, yeah, I don't know. I have. I. 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 It's. It, I find it interesting that people that it is sort of a legitimate perspective, political perspective. But I. I just don't see how it could ever work. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that right now its main function is to get people to vote for traditional center-left parties. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The main function of the anarchist discourse in the states was to find ways of motivating people who otherwise would not have voted for Joe Biden to vote for Joe Biden. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a careful dance where the establishment is using anarchism to legitimate itself. Mm -hmm. And then in return, you know, in return for the anarchists towing the line and, and coming back over and supporting uh, people like Joe Biden, the ones who do that are then rewarded with the possibility of eventually getting over their anarchism and yeah. moving into government. Yeah. And we see this over and over, generation yeah. after generation. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the anarchists will, will go, no, I, I won't support Joe Biden. And these people just become alienated from the political system and they fade into obscurity and they get more and more upset and, and resentful as they get older. So their activism becomes less and less effective as they're more and more alienated from the whole thing. Yeah. The other group you know, flip back to being part of the establishment and are welcomed back with open arms. Yeah. The the center left has no problem with anarchists coming back over to it later in life. That's kind of what they, there's always this argument that as you grow up, you're supposed to mature. And so yeah. they love the stories about, oh, this person used to be a, you know, a bit of an anarchist, you know, oh, Barack Obama, he was a community organizer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they like that kind of frame, uh, but yeah, I, I, I think I, there's a there's a mutualist relationship between the yeah. elite technocrats yeah. and the anarchists. Absolutely, they come from the same class yes. and they're often the yes. same people at yes. different phases of absolutely. life. I mean, this is the thing is the, the domination of, of like tech within within the economy and the promise of tech, you know, um, obviously part of the convincing promise was the fact that it comes from this ilk of perspective you know that's kind of oh but it's different oh but it's freedom oh but it's you know not it's not shirts it's t-shirts it's sleep pods um i don't know i think i'm just like very dialectical about everything and it's just like well and i'm also very adjusting about everything which i always well, is more about me but like i don't think there's any material solution um i think there is a a philosophical solution 
Um, yeah, I, I've been wrestling with this for a while, and I, I see ways of philosophically you know, squaring things, yeah. but it's always difficult to then turn that philosophy into what would be an effective That's strategy right. that would actually yeah. move the parts. Yeah. And, you know, I, I continue to think about this, and I'll always think about it because I think it's it's the question, and to not think about it would be a kind of giving up. Yeah. Uh, Thankfully, I'm not a, an expert in politics. I just like write drama and turn it into a material thing. <laughs> so I sort of feel like I the thing that I think about drama is like it's it's an, it is inherently dialectic. I mean, it is inherently multiplicitous. It's kaleidoscopic, and it hopefully can be productively destabilizing or productively reassuring or productively you know generating questions and reflections on a condition but it is sad to see and i think you're absolutely right and this is a 21st century turn um the form of art that i'm involved in becoming an ideological comfort blanket or an ideological weapon or something that i think like this isn't it's interesting because you know, if one makes philosophical art, one can be said, oh, you're trying to put a message in your film. But like, to me, this, the, the, the message of, of capitalism or this ideological perspective is so pervasive now that we don't, I mean, this is, I guess, why I set up this podcast. <laughs> it's just like, point this out in all these different films, you know, because it's just... But yeah. it was pitched as resistance. Yeah. Was speaking yeah. up for, for the kind of capitalism which is associated with capital mobility is pitched as resistance when people are acting as if Donald Trump is a fascist who is going to tear apart globalization and yeah. return us to the world of nation states. At that point, arguing for 90s capitalism becomes a kind of resistance. Yeah. And at that point, all of those people, they immediately revert to the aesthetic of their anarchist youths yeah. and uh, are able to seamlessly associate that with their current project. Because the aesthetic is so overwhelmingly similar, I you know, think about that most uh, that that Star Wars uh, movie with the the whole rebel the the rebels theme. How much the elite loves to think of itself as in rebellion, and so much of the frustration with Trump is that Trump steals this this rebellion uh, this rebellion yeah, aesthetic yeah, from them, and they yeah. want it back. So they yeah. they have to lean all the way in to resist yeah. uh, when. The movement around Trump is is a movement of trying to resist globalization and, and yeah. go back to the 50s. He himself is not effectively no. moved in that direction. Yeah. And I don't think that that's going to happen anytime soon. But down the line, down the line. I know it's interesting to see. I mean, I know you talked about um, the implications of voting for Biden and, you know, four, down, four years, eight years down the line, what this is going to mean. Um, and that, yeah, Trump, Trump was something, but he was also... Um, almost nothing of what he thought he was. Right, it was, he was, and, and this is the, the element of it that is the other side. So the thing about Trump that was interesting yeah. is that Trump is the aesthetic cathartic version yeah. of the nationalist politics. Yeah. So he is a version of the other thing, yeah. the attempt to get yourself, uh, the ego into representation. Mm -hmm. He's that thing. Uh, masquerading yeah. as the first thing exactly. to do with rolling back globalization. Yeah. Uh, and so the, the fascinating question is if and when the right will move past cathartically doing the far left thing. Yeah. And in, well, left, the identitarian. <laughs> the, ne the neoliberal thing. I don't know. The woke, the woke neoliberal yeah. thing, right? Yeah. Because Trump really is a woke neoliberal yeah. in the sense that 
Trump is you getting to see someone who aesthetically is like you yeah. in power and therefore projecting yourself as associated with power and able to vicariously live through this hero figure who is yourself if you were in charge. Absolutely, which does sort of, I mean, I, um, God, I, yeah, I don't want to be like particularist about this. And I think these people, it's not their own faults, but it is more representative of the currents at play. But, you know, the AOCs of the world come up at the same time as the Trumps of the world. And I don't want to sound like a horseshoe theorist. Yeah, exactly. Because exactly, I can imagine, yeah, yeah I, I can imagine somebody sitting there listening yeah. and going, oh my God, saying that AOC and yeah. Trump are the same thing. Oh, they must be centrist or something. Yeah, I can know. But no, no, the issue yeah. is that neither one of them really escapes this yeah. modern paradigm where representation has to be thicker and thicker and thicker. Yeah. And you need the person who is there representing you yeah. to reflect more and more and more of the ego and therefore to reflect more and more stuff, which is not stuff that you can share with the other. So I make all of this. You know, I talk about universalism. But at the same time, I'm saying you can't have a representation system which is based on expecting people to share things that are particular. Absolutely. Well, this is the, this is the thing about the universal is that the, the connection of the universal is, in my opinion, it's an essential lacking position. It's like it's right. contradiction. It's like, therefore, it doesn't matter who represents you, you know, yeah. if we're taking it from that perspective. but you, It's very thin. The kind yeah. of representation which comes out of that kind of yeah. ancient theory is very, very thin. Mm -hmm. And it's very thin because when you recognize this level of fundamental metaphysical yeah. universality, yeah. then the particular divisions which come out of the body and how you happen to talk or what you happen yeah. to look like, yeah. these aesthetic bodily divisions are not important. Exactly, exactly. I mean, this is, it's funny again, because like, I feel like on some level there might be things, oh, you sound like hippies or you sound like, Benetton, whatever's it's like no no you know um but yeah the, the, like the, the question of race this obsession with race when actually like these are contingent factors according to how close you were to the equator at the point of all your parents were or your descendants were at the point of birth and obviously through history various factors have led us to associate um, events and things with different skin, but essentially it is meaningless, you know, it is like actually meaningless. Um, yeah, and the hippie movement in, in the 60s, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, point because so much of the hippie movement is a reaction against conformity yeah. in the name of the individual. Absolutely, yeah. Right? Now, that can be pitched as, okay, the kind of conformity which we had in the post-war era was too too thick. It was too cultural. It yeah. was not a thin enough citizenship or, or uh, being human kind of, yeah. of sharedness. It was to do with living in a very particular kind of way. Uh, and so you could say at the outset, it was a move to try to thin the unity, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But of course, what happens with that 60s energy is it instead moves into a very ego movement, yeah. which of course eventually generates Reagan and Thatcher in the Absolutely. neoliberal era. Yeah. So instead of thinning the unity to get to something which is more manageable and also more open, mm -hmm. right? So if you're living in the Roman Empire, if you live in different provinces, you, you can live in very different ways. Mm -hmm. Roman law is very thin in terms of what it expects from you culturally, yeah. right? Uh, so there's an attempt to thin the unity that then morphs into 
a retreat from unity into the self. Yeah. And then ego projection. Absolutely. And those two moves get conflated together. So yeah. sometimes when people are talking about the 60s and the hippie movement, they're talking about this attempt to get back to some kind of unity. Yeah. And other times they're talking about the individual is emancipated. And, yeah. and those are almost two precisely different ways yeah. of understanding what was going on in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And of course, they were both going on at the same time. Yeah. But one of those won out over the other yeah. historically. Mm-hmm. And began to dominate more and more and more. And I think it's because of the background material conditions of of capitalism that causes the more ego-oriented view to triumph. And that's the trouble that we're in. Anytime we try to get back out of that ego view toward a thinner, more sustainable kind of of unity, the ego movement wins because capitalism feeds the ego movement. Absolutely. So you have, yeah, Freud versus the uh, misreadings and appropriations into an obsession with self-improvement <laughs> in the 20th century. Yeah, which is very difficult. And this is, this is I think now there's, an, and I get very nervous about it, you know, I'm not in the public eye really in any way at all. I just can't do a podcast. But, you know, everything is so, um, and I think, you know, this relates to what we're talking about, about the instability of everything. So there's a grasping of signifiers, you know, this person is this, this person is racist, therefore we can't talk to them. This person said this, so whatever. This person is a defender of capital, so this person thinks she's left-wing, but she's actually not. When actually the thing is that these labels just don't really get to the heart of the issue. And one thing can become another thing. And often... Yeah, as you say, like the horseshoe theory is bullshit, but the one element of truth in in it, the one insight is that you can sometimes have things that are opposites that look very similar. And it's more about a wider economic, you know, the material conditions, the undercurrent of the material conditions. But yeah, I mean, the left, the right, we're in a state of flux right now. Who knows where it'll land? But I I find this this targeting of other people, it comes back to... I can't see you as a as an extension of myself in the public realm yeah, yeah. because there's something about you which is too fundamentally different from me. Yeah. And sometimes it's moral, but a lot of the time it's just aesthetic. Yeah, absolutely. It's not even absolutely. not even moral, yeah, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. just there's something about you that makes you not me, and mm-hmm. therefore I'm building a, a self-other distinction. Yeah. It, it's a kind of Schmidtian distinction, but it's not made at the level of groups. Mm-hmm. It's made at the level of self so, and yeah. non-self. Yeah. And of course, you can't build a politics around a Schmidtian friend-enemy distinction where the friend has to be an extension of self. Mm-hmm. And that's why nationalist Schmidtianism beats out heavily self-oriented Schmidtianism. Yeah. yeah. I just yeah, it's all it's all different species of that, yeah. of making these cuts and saying very firmly that you're in and you're out. Yeah, I'm this, not that. It's such a, I mean, I could be completely wrong, but I think that... Um, the end of World War One, 1919, was the rise of neoliberalism and the first war of neoliberalism, World War Two. Could be wrong, but it's just something that I thought. But we have these like nations and now, yeah, reducing to the self. And obviously, how does this, you know, the, the question that's raised is how convenient is this for capital? And where does this put us in relation to the family? Um, are we just headed for sleep pods living on our own? <laughs> like, no, like, complete alienation from the other 
in every possible way. I mean, I'm really nervous about that. I'm really nervous about that. I'm utterly terrified. Um, yeah. And you see it in the way that people pick romantic partners. They can't tolerate the romantic partner being not them. Yeah. The romantic yeah. partner has to complete them and therefore their entire personality and set of characteristics has to entirely complement theirs. Yeah. And if there's any area of deviation, then that becomes, uh, oh, we're not a compatible match. Yeah. We're not yeah. Uh, yeah. right for each other. Because even in the family, we're expecting everybody in the family to be this projection of the self. Yeah. And that's a big part of why I think a lot of relationships and families fundamentally can't work. We're asking people not only to meet material needs or to meet emotional needs, but to be projections of ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and whenever they don't conform to that, we can't accept them. And not only can we not accept them, but we have to treat them as an enemy mm -hmm. or an outside. Uh, and this means that we're constantly at war with everybody around us. Our coalitions are, are very fragile with other people. And so we destroy our own possibility of connectedness because we can't be with someone who strikes us as not an extension of the self. Yeah. And since nobody, nobody can be that similar to us in every respect, we have a multitudinous society where everybody is different. And, and so that's, that's the thing. To really get at unity, mm -hmm. you have to also understand the difference. Uh, the unity is that very, very thin unity mm -hmm. that comes out of having this relationship between subjectivity and the universal mm -hmm. and having a body and having a body that has particular kinds of needs. But all of this other stuff is entirely contingent and you can't build anything with it. Nothing that lasts. And even religion, even you know the Catholic consensus, which was the basis for political legitimacy in the Middle Ages, you could do that for a few centuries, and then that consensus breaks apart. And the only way that consensus was sustainable was through an immense amount of repression, mm -hmm. an immense amount of purposeful repression. And mm -hmm. people go, well, why is the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages so repressive? It's because any deviation on theological matters compromises the ability of the state to reflect the theology which everyone shares. Yeah. And so you have the only way that you can get any kind of society which lasts, which has this level of, of self-reflectiveness, is to be extraordinarily repressive mm -hmm. uh, on a scale that, uh, you know, until recently, I thought repulsed everybody. But yeah. more recently, yeah. it seems like more and more people are OK with this, provided that they think that that system is them. Yeah. The issue is it's not going to be you yeah. because the ego, you individually are not powerful enough. Yeah to compel the state to consistently reflect you. So in one moment, it's gonna reflect you, and the next moment, it's gonna reflect somebody else. And so we see this constant switching back and forth between, okay, the state is someone that I feel reflects me, whether it's Trump or Obama or whomever. And because the state is someone who reflects me, they can do anything. I'll support them and they can do anything. Yeah. They can, uh, he could seize the state. Donald yeah. Trump could refuse to you know, concede the election and seize the state. Or Barack Obama could just do executive orders and ignore the Supreme Court, pack mm -hmm. it, whatever. Uh, the person who cathartically represents me yeah. is the Caesar figure that I'm willing to do anything for. Yeah, and then as soon as it flips and yeah. that person isn't you, oh my God, we live in a totalitarian society. Mm -hmm. uh, oh my God, uh, I'm people like me are being destroyed. There's a mm -hmm. genocide of people like me. So this, this very hard flipping back and forth between, on the one hand, uh, fully embracing Caesarism, and on the other hand, desiring uh, total destruction of the state because the state is anathema. Uh, 
you can't you can't sustain that you can't live in that you can't it's, it's exhausting it is exhausting but it is interesting you know like now we're, we're reduced to the self where can it go where can it go beyond the self i don't know but yeah also these these when when repressions at play like a huge amount of religious justification is required and obviously you know god is dead but we do have a new new religions of the self you know yeah identity political religions it's as weber put it many gods and demons right because once that consensus breaks down now people can worship anything yeah yeah Uh, literally anything yeah absolutely i mean the the commodity is also a you know a god so it can take any form that you absolutely you know you could possibly imagine Everybody wants the thing that they're worshiping to be the Pope, to be the Catholic Church yeah. in the Middle Ages, yeah. where everyone bows down and recognizes it. Everybody's living in this in this fantasy of it. And a lot of the fiction that we're making, this kind of save the world fiction, yeah. it ends in the total triumph of a particular worldview as yeah. expressed by a hero character. Yeah. A lot of kids' fiction is like this. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, it's Harry Potter. Yeah. 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 Where the, the hero figure you know wins, and in the course of winning, an entire value set, an entire way of thinking about the world becomes instantiated in a permanent way through the hero yeah. figure. Yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, a lot of shows that I liked as a kid worked this way. Yeah. You know, Avatar The Last Airbender works this way. Yeah. And I, I think it's a nice show. Uh, I've seen it. A, 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 lot of, a lot of stuff does. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that it, we have this, this uh, just immense desire for catharsis through mirroring her, yeah. hero yeah. figures. And the emphasis on superheroes, all of this stuff, it's faces of this. Yeah. And it's just not sustainable, this level of... And a lot of it comes from the fact that the individual is so weak under yeah. a globalized yeah. world yeah. system that this idea of an individual having the ability to make meaningful choices is very appealing. Yeah. And then to project yourself into that role is very appealing. Mm-hmm. And we think of it as a kid thing where you project yourself into the hero role as a kid. And that's something you grow out of as you get older. But people aren't growing out of it. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of people continuing to project themselves as the hero through politics. Yeah. And they're taking a little kid way of relating to fandom and yeah. art yeah. and they're making it political. Absolutely. Uh, and there's no obvious point of maturity. It's not like we're, there's ever a point where we teach people, oh, wait a minute. Now you have to reconcile yourself to social roles. Yeah. If you start from the beginning of somebody's life telling them you can do anything, you can be the hero figure. Here are stories about hero figures that you should try to be like and then tell them, OK, reconcile yourself to a job and a role within the mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. They're going to continue to live out a fantasy world. Mm-hmm. And they do this. You know, people are doing this in their in the kind of art that they're consuming. And this is leading to a market which is constantly driving the production of more and more of this cathartic escape art. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just becoming more and more totalizing where it's it's what we encourage people to do from when they're very young. And they have no interest in the kind of, of limited roles. Yeah that we used to have to the point where Absolutely. even talking about roles as a part of life is, yes, is yeah. a reactionary viewed as totalitarian yeah. or reaction. I know I, it's, yeah. it's, um, it's interesting. It's just that, that not, you know, that my, my, you know, analysis of AAC on this podcast has nothing to do with her like political stance. I mean, that's a whole different thing, but it's just in terms of what she represents within, you know, the current condition. But I just thought it was so fascinating that first state of the union that she was at. And she actually dressed as a superhero. She dressed as an angel with wings. She had this like poncho with the kind of you know, the women in white, and yeah, I just I just think it is gonna end in tears. But um, 
Yeah, no, I mean, the thing is, if I was brought up like this, potentially given your age, you were the same, you are the hero of your own life. And, of course, we're coming up as, as this generation hits adulthood against, like, an immense disappointment, both because that was never possible and also because that world, a world in which that might have been more possible has come to an end. Um, but it, one thing that I kind of wanted to end on was just this, like, what potentially are alternate, you know, story forms or um, legitimization mechanisms, you know, that aren't quite as toxic. I watched a documentary on this um, organization called the Bruderhof, which was a, a, this uh, socialist Christian um, society that developed in 1920s Germany, which I think is quite interesting, you know, this time of great industrial, well, you know, um, you have the post-World War One issues in Germany, and then once it start, the loans start to come in, you have a great boom and a great sort of um, bohemian kind of uh, cultural values and city centres and stuff. But anyway, this this, this uh, Christian socialist sect, and they there's three thousand of them. They live in these villages around the world, and it's completely collective. And I'm not saying like this is a better way. It's just it's just an interesting and different way. And watching the interviews of the people who live in this organisation, you know, there's no property. Not that that I think is like a solution to anything. But it really, their subjectivity was completely different. I mean, it was totally like I do not understand the idea of being bothered about myself. And they have, you know, there's a lot of these um, sort of more. Um, you know, if extreme is the right word, but ways of living, you know, they let their young people choose at the age of, in their late teens, early 20s, where they want to live. And it was following a girl who moved to London to be a youth worker for a year. And she just couldn't comprehend it. She couldn't, the, you know, the ideological position is that, you know, you were born with an inherent lack that only the joy of following Jesus can fill or the joy of serving other people. I sound religious, I'm not Christian in any way, but the joy of service or the joy of um, the toil of day-to-day -day life and living in community can fill. And the fact that we have, you know, she was in a clothes shop and these gaudy stiletto shoes could be the thing you try to fill that lack with or this disgusting t-shirt <laughs> that some sweatshop child in Bangladesh has made is going to fill that. I mean, it just it's just interesting. I think it just spoke to the fact that this way of living completely transforms the life vision of the people who live within that um, community. If they're born into it, it's complete. And yeah, I'm sure that organization has its own problems, but I think it just speaks to the fact that our ideological vision is not neutral. Yeah. Yeah, I think when it comes to art uh, in particular, one of the things that I would like to see is stuff that doesn't focus around particular important characters, mm -hmm. special ones, hero figures, and stuff where people are trying to make the world a better place, but are actually constrained by structures rather than just not having particular powers or other people having particular mm -hmm. powers, people actually interacting with structures. And in so much of fiction, especially in adult fiction, you know, the, the hero figure just uses natural powers that they've been given by the author mm -hmm. to overcome and transcend structures. You know, like uh, the Neil Breen film, Pass Through, where the main character who is played by the director uh, 
goes around and cleanses the world of all the bad people using special powers from another world to to do the cleanse. A very extreme version of what is is totally common now mm -hmm. in a lot of this stuff. Uh, so one would be no man characters, people actually interfacing with structure uh, and actually constrained by structure and having to go outside themselves to deal with it, mm -hmm. having to actually bring other people together in cooperative schemes to deal with it, rather than being assigned party members who are intrinsically loyal to them because the plot needs them to be, as you and your friends yeah. going up against the world. Actually having to work with people who are not their friends, mm -hmm. that they don't even like, mm -hmm. uh, that they have very little in common with, and nonetheless having to find a way to cooperate with those people, rather than just replacing them and replacing their institutions through natural power. Yeah. Uh, and I, I see some hints of this in some of some of the stuff that we've seen in recent years, like uh, an interesting kind of weird mix of stuff and very far from from what I'm talking about. But a weird mix of stuff is the Hunger Games, mm -hmm. where in the Hunger Games, you instead of having the hero character be the defender of a good status quo that needs to be preserved from the Hitler Nazi figure, mm -hmm. as in Harry Potter. Yeah. The character exists in a world which is already bad mm -hmm. and trying to change that bad world and is not the only person trying to mm -hmm. change it and does have to interact with some other structures and social forces to try to change it. Um, still too much weight on the hero character. Mm -hmm. And uh, the author had no idea really how to end it uh, because there was a discomfort, I think. And I, Game of Thrones is having this issue, too. Uh, George R. R. Martin is having this issue with his novels. The way that these stories would have to end to fit with the way that their worlds are constructed would not suit the audience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the show, uh, the Game of Thrones show, resolved this by just giving the audience a cathartic ending, mm -hmm. which half the audience didn't want. Mm -hmm. Half the audience yeah. was genuinely really upset by yeah. Game of Thrones yeah. trying to give them that cathartic ending. Uh, but the other half totally bought it, was totally happy with it, and totally didn't mind and nominated it for a bunch of Emmys. Mm -hmm. um, but this is the problem. When you have a show that doesn't have a singular main character perspective and where characters that make mistakes and don't build good cooperative relationships get screwed over and don't succeed, uh, that is very compelling to people, but it's often only compelling on the expectation that that will change and that, that yeah. the hero character will somehow break through. And it's even more impressive when they break through because the obstacles have been fully demonstrated. Great example of that in Game of Thrones is Jon Snow's character, mm -hmm. who dies because he fails to build alliances, fails to work appropriately within the institutions mm -hmm. that he has, alienates too many people around him, mm -hmm. and they kill him because he's unable to work within structures, which I thought was a wonderful, wonderful yeah. thing. Then in the show, they bring him back from the dead and turn him into a hero figure totally ruining Absolutely. the interesting point that was being made. Yeah, I mean, I can assure you that people are creating this kind of narrative. And I actually think that the technology of narrative is so good at presenting these kinds of different perspectives. The question is convincing, you know, it to be able to be exposed to a wide audience. And I actually think that Game of Thrones is that the things that are popular are popular not because they are the simplistic narrative, but because people want or people want solidarity, like they actually yeah. do. And the work that we do through my company, we have a fantastic response from audiences. We really do. And not to be like, we are so great, but I just am very um, happy with the responses that we get. We do not sit well with the um, 
powers that be that decide what gets screened on channels, networks, those kinds of things, because often it's too challenging or we want something more escapist or it's too intellectual. When people are not dumb and actually those who are most, uh, I think, um, infected by this individualist perspective are the more elite people within society or those who buy into retaining an elite position within our country, current condition. And they are often the people who choose what gets made, but actually audiences don't want that shit. Yeah, I think a lot of people who are working class are you know, frustrated by those hero narratives and spend a lot of time telling their kids, hey, life isn't really like that. It doesn't really work that yeah. way. You have to find a way to get into a role that's Absolutely. that's positive. And a lot of the stuff that we you know, that, that we get frustrated uh, by in narratives, you know, if you think about Fiddler on the Roof, for mm -hmm. instance, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where this uh, Jewish father has his daughters yeah. and they don't want to play by the rules. They don't want to marry the people they're supposed to marry. His focal point throughout that narrative is a very working class focal point, and it's I want security for my kids. Yeah. I want my kids to be in stable roles where they'll be okay. And even if in the moment they don't like the guy, it doesn't matter mm -hmm. because that person will put them in a stable role where they'll be all right. Yeah. And I think that's the way that most people through most of history have thought about <laughs> bringing up their children. How do I get my kids in a stable role where they'll be okay? And even if they want something in the moment that seems more romantic or idealistic, if it's not compatible with ending up in a stable role where they're okay, because those basic needs won't be met, that happiness will die. It won't be able to stay. Uh, and in more recent times, whenever we approach a narrative like that, the character who's arguing for stability has to be proven wrong and has to adjust and has yeah, to make yeah, do with absolutely. the fact that the yeah. kids are going to go off and, and do other things. And uh, always the, those relationships that the kids pursue that are based on love and not based on pragmatic mm -hmm. role selection, those relationships always work out and they're always yeah. fine. Yeah. You know, in Fiddler on the Roof, the first daughter marries a poor tailor. Uh, and the fact that he's a poor tailor isn't a problem yeah. because she's she's not so obsessed with material stuff, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. The thing is that that material stuff is the baseline for any level of security. Exactly. And in the absence of any material yeah. stuff, it's impossible to, to live okay. Yeah. Uh, and I think that there are a lot of people out there who still have a level of receptiveness to this idea that you got to end up in, in some kind of functional, yeah. stable role. The issue is that the people who make decisions about what kind of art gets made are not those people. No, no. I think that the best way to get there is a lot of the time you'll be given more room if you're beginning a series, mm -hmm. whether yeah. it's a TV yeah. show or a series of books. Yes. And, and if there's some kind of hypothetical promise that it might end in a way yeah. which satisfies these yeah. people, they'll let you do a lot of other stuff Absolutely. along the way. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. Then you get to the end and of course you can't end it. <laughs> But <laughs> yeah. no, I think you're absolutely right. There's also a lot of people who or a few people who already maybe came up in a time that wasn't quite as um, imprisoning as it is today in terms of the artistic realm. Someone like Ken Loach, I actually wasn't that much of a fan of his older films, but his newer films, I think, are fantastic. And um, Sorry to Bother You, I don't know if you saw, was utterly brilliant. Yeah. Um, obviously, we talked the other day about... Um, Florida Project. Tangerine was a very successful film in that, you know, the people that it 
foregrounded the way it was made it became a real hit and so one's sainthood to a certain extent is uh, secured within <laughs> you know this this weird world that i work in and one can maybe have a bit more freedom to do different things and i thought that film was an incredible film the florida project um but yeah no it is it's um it's shocking i actually think uh, in europe it's worse than it is in america and i think that's because of the material conditions of the way that the industry is structured around and former attempt to preserve um, European film that has actually just become uh, a um, functionary controlled uh, corporate capitalism and I think it's it's much worse here <laughs> and that potentially the backgrounds of those choosing um, are from a different you know I, I think these things are emergent of political economy essentially but yeah it's yeah. it's uh, worrying but i do think though that i have faith in people and more and more and more i feel greater and greater and greater faith in people in normal people um i think the conditions are difficult at the moment and i think that's why we're seeing ridiculous online political movements or whatever but actually people are good people know things and want things and they recognize something bad when they see it and i think this is why as you say woke superhero films make a lot of money but piss a lot of people off i always get uh, some level of satisfaction from seeing the percentage of people who don't vote yeah because the group of people who don't vote I admire them because they they have managed to not see any of these people as heroes who reflect their essence. Yeah, they yeah. recognize that none of these people are heroes who reflect their essence mm -hmm. and that things will go on much as before, regardless of who wins and that therefore it doesn't really matter. Those people are closer to the truth yeah. than most of the people yeah. in the elite who are making arguments about who you should or shouldn't That's vote true. for. So I'm always a little yeah. bit buttressed by seeing how many people don't vote. When voter turnout goes up, I get a little sad. <laughs> But that's true. That could one could hear that and think that you're a quietist and that you don't only care about yourself and you don't care about the wider society. But actually, like again, no, you know, this is no, no. And yeah. if there was, if there was a political movement that was trying to win, I think that it yeah. would get a lot of these non-voters. Yeah. And I think that that's the audience that we really should be targeting. Absolutely. It's a huge yeah. number of people. Yeah. Uh, but when there isn't a movement like that that's actually going to do anything mm -hmm. for people and turnout goes up anyway. Yeah. That I find very sad. Uh, I would support high turnout if there was something on the menu that yeah. actually would do something for the people who yeah. would be voting. Yeah. But when we get high turnout without that, it, it just depresses me. I did, this election cycle was supremely depressing, and I'm not an American, so I didn't even have yeah. anything to say. Oh. But it was just horrendous. Anyway, well, um, thank you so much for, for coming on today. And um, I totally agree with you uh, with your... Um, insights on narrative uh, forms as they are currently presenting themselves to us today and it's something i'm both worried about but also something that i spend my entire time trying to do something good with so <laughs> i'll probably fail but hopefully there are other people who are trying to do the same thing and who won't fail um but yeah thank you for listening and uh until next time Thanks for having me. Not at all.